Would you please join with me in prayer? Oh, Holy Spirit, come. Illumine our hearts and our minds to the reality of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and for his work years before his earthly appearing. And that as we dive into Isaiah this Advent season, I pray that you would speak to us in new and refreshing ways so that, Lord, we would know you and be magnetic people to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome, my friends, to Advent. As I mentioned earlier, we are spending the next four weeks in the book of Isaiah with the lectionary passages. Um, Advent, as you may remember, is Latin for coming. And so we're looking two ways forward. We look first at preparing our hearts for Christmas, that as we take these next 23 days till Christmas Eve, intentionally to remember that we need such a Savior, lowly born in a manger for us, who will eventually go to the cross for us. And because we need such a Savior, you, you can't just, in a trite way, say, Oh, wonderful, I need a Savior, and then jump to Christmas. Advent is a four-week journey to the manger that we need this Savior, Jesus, and we should never forget it. So we start early, December 1st this year. We tell one another the bad news, that we're rebels to the core, and that we're sinners, and we need a Savior. That we warn one another of the false narratives of the world, the flesh, that we war against, and the devil. And we present Jesus as the ultimate gift at Christmas Eve. And so we take these next four weeks and we embed this narrative into our lives, which is from the Scripture. That's the first direction we look. We also look at His second coming. For as you heard Mark proclaim in our lesson this morning, Stay awake! You do not know when the master of the house will come, at evening or at midday or when the rooster crows, lest you come, he come suddenly and find you asleep. That we're people who keep our heads up, anticipating our Lord's second advent, his second coming. Because when he comes, he's not going to come as a baby, he's going to come as our king and our ruler. He's going to make all things right. We look forward to that day. And the older you get, the more you look forward to it. Amen? Amen. You young people will figure that out one day. And so that's what we're doing here. It's an exciting time as we look forward to that, his second coming. And so we're going to look at Isaiah because Isaiah saw this king, this conqueror. He saw, and he, we eventually see this, he's the most quoted prophet pertaining to our Lord's first advent. And so we're going to spend some time because what we're going to see is a message of great hope for us on this first Sunday of Hope of Advent. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah served between 790 and 686 B.C. He saw the falling of Israel in his lifetime. He served under four different kings. Uzziah, Jotham, 
Ahaz, and Hezekiah. It was a long career in ministry, Isaiah the priest. And it was under constant threat from the Assyrian Empire. And you notice this vision is not for the northern kingdom, Israel. This vision is for the southern kingdom, Judah and Jerusalem. The holy city. Mount Zion. He wants to make sure that they are aware of this vision that he's received. Now a vision could have been an actual vision. It more than likely usually is broader. It's to see truth. The Hebrew word is chazah, meaning revelation from the Lord. And so they're under this constant threat from Assyria, which honestly um, it be, has begun the practice of forcing tribute. Meaning it's kind of like the old mafia days where the godfather would walk into your business and say, I'll pay, you pay me this money and I'll protect you. Well, if you don't pay the money, he's going to beat you up. And that's exactly what Assyria was doing in a more serious way. Because if you didn't pay Assyria the money, they just raised the land. It was an awful regime. And so you might be wondering, well, Gene, you know, we spent all last year in Luke. It was so wonderful to see, hear Jesus' words and the practical applications that we got from it. Why are we going back to this kind of confusing, prophetic uttering? And this, it's confusing to go to the Old Testament. I want to say, if, you're, if you've thought that, ever thought that, or you're thinking that, you're a little disappointed that we're doing Isaiah, I, I understand that. You read this and you go, huh? Right? But I want you to think of it this way. If we were to ask, let's take Moses. If we were to ask Moses, Moses, why the Old Testament? How is it that you lived? How did you make it? And he would say something like this, well, we were in a foreign land in bondage under a sentence of death, but our mediator, the one between us and God, promised us deliverance. We trusted in those promises of God, took shelter under the blood of the lamb, and he let us out. We're not there yet, of course, but we have the law to guide us. And through the blood sacrifice, we also have his presence in our lives and our midst. So he'll stay with us until we get to our true home, to our true country, our everlasting home. End quote. We could say that today, couldn't we? That's why we study the Old Testament. Because the redemptive work of Christ is in every page. You've got to look for it sometimes, but it's there. All right? So we're going to look at it. A Christian could say that. Because Isaiah sees a devastated land, a failed church, a corrupt people. And if you read all 66 books, you're going to see God will have the last word for his people. And the lost sheep of Israel. And we arrive at chapter 2. And basically, this vision is, you're not, you read chapter 1, you guys aren't who you're supposed to be. And haven't you ever wondered that? You know, Lord, what do you want me to do? How am I to live? What's my next steps? Well, what we're going to see today is some next steps for us as God's people. 
And what we have is a transforming poem of hope and transformation. First, what we see is an introduction. It's uh, to concerning the Judah and Jerusalem. And in verse 2, the Lord speaking to Isaiah, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. In these latter days could also be translated in the end of days. Isaiah looks from the beauty of the creation, kind of hearkening back to Genesis 1, and sees the absolute wreckage of history all the way forward to the final glory and consummation of our Lord's returning for us. And what does he foresee? He foresees the worship of God enthused over while all the idols of the world are humbled into absolutely nothing. And that the mountain of the Lord, the house of the Lord, shall be established as the highest of the mountains. My friends, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know Mount Zion's really nothing much more than a pitching mound. You know, it's not, it's, it's not like the Colorado Rockies or the Swiss Alps. It's quite unimpressive as mountains go. But that's the point. The church isn't looked at at times as being overly impressive either. It rarely is. But in the latter days, all the nations will abandon their worldviews and will gladly give the church their esteem as the world's leader in worship. As we gather toward Mount Zion, and all the nations shall flow to the church as well. And so many people shall come, and then they will say, the second half of verse 2, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Do you see the anti-gravitational flow as these nations go? They're flowing uphill. Streams don't go uphill. But all the nations gathering will go up to the mountain of the Lord because they want to learn and grow in the Lord. And there are no preconditions. They're all eager and they're open and in one sense, this miracle has already begun. It began with Pentecost 2,000 years ago in Acts chapter 2. And it continues today in Christian missions. And it will be consummated in the latter days with an overflowing rivers of conversions to Jesus Christ. That's what Isaiah is seeing. It's going to come. We pray it comes now. And it's so exciting. I returned home from the University of Wyoming, a defeated 18-year-old young man. While I was at the University of Wyoming, I worshipped at the cathedral church there. Beautiful cathedral built back when there were real cowboys surrounding it in the mid-1800s. It's a cool structure, but it was dead. People didn't sing. The, the, the rector didn't preach. 
He just told little homilies of, of, you know, poetry, you know. And he was dressed to the gills with all the haberdashery you could possibly imagine. And so, you know, I'm, I'm giving it the old college try here, Lord. This thing in Wyoming isn't working out, so I'm just resting on you. And so after about four months of this, I didn't feel home at the university. I didn't feel home in this church. I came from Truro, where the singing was alive. The sermons were full of life, bringing out the redemptive work of Christ and Isaiah. And I arrived home on the first Sunday of Advent, where this passage was read. Now, you've got to understand something about Washington, D.C. Power matters. Right, So you would see, I don't know if you still see it today, I haven't been there on a Sunday morning lately, but when I was in high school, it was a regular thing that you saw the military brass people would wear their uniforms. I'm talking about three-star generals, admirals, you know, Marine Corps generals, the whole, you know, nine yards would wear the uniforms. And I'd elbow my dad, I'd go, why is he wearing his uniform? And my dad would say something snarky like, well, he hadn't gotten over himself yet. Because I knew admirals and generals that didn't wear their uniforms. Well, this one particular Sunday, I came home. I was glad to be home. I was sitting next to Kimmy. We, all, we went to church that Sunday. And at Tro, the psalm, but they didn't, we didn't read the psalm. We usually sung a hymn or a song together along the text of the day. And there was a song from the late 60s, early 70s. It was kind of a folk song. And it went like this. Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of our God. Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of our God. And he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his path. And the word will go forth out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and nobody was singing just me and Kimmy we were sitting up to the front we're singing we're like this is great I mean you know looking around you got, don't you see how great this is you know the choir is singing the rector's singing and John Howe he had guts he said stop now this is a congregation which seats about 750 people all right it's full you know three-star generals admirals Stop, stop, stop. Let's do that again. So he, the, the, the organist started to play it. The piano started to play it. And he starts marching. Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of our God. Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of our God. And he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his path. And the word of the Lord from Zion and the word of the Lord to Jerusalem. And all of a sudden people started to sing because the rector was making an idiot of himself. It was a children's song and it was exciting. Don't miss this. The Lord is going to do this through his church. And the world is going to come and worship the one true God. Now, I know when you hear the words out of Zion, the implication is out of Zion only. 
And that's not a popular message today. We're told that that gospel message is intolerant. We're told that we should admit that all religions are valid ways to God so that people can be true to themselves. But those in this vision remain multicultural. They're as the nations. They are who they are as Asians, Africans, Europeans, Canadians, you know, whatever it might be. And, and it's many peoples. And what changes is that in all their beautiful diversity, they find their greatest delight as new creations in this new devotion in Christ. And if the whole world freely chooses to rally around Jesus Christ by the irresistible force of his dying love for them, who would deny them that choice? That would be oppressive. So look how desirable it is from a universally human point of view to be allured to Christ. Because Isaiah doesn't stop there. The whole world's coming. And he says, as they come, verse 4, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Imagine that. When the good news of Jesus sweeps over across the entire world, there will neither the practice nor even the inclination to engage in war. No widows or orphans will be left behind by a fallen soldier. No more $300 army screwdrivers. All that money and genius and effort will be deployed for life-enriching purposes. That's hopeful. And it's our only hope. And Isaiah is trying to get this across to Judah and Jerusalem and that the people hear this. And what is the power of that hope right now? Verse 5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Verse 5 corresponds to verse 3. Verse 3 echoes, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord and resembles what the nations are saying. That we may walk in his paths. In verse 5, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That the believers walk in the light. The nations come to the worship of God. Believers walk in the light of God. And it's attractive. And it's magnetic. And we have become a magnetic presence in our generation as the nations can see their own most deep desires to be found in that light. In other words, let the promises of God have their full impact in us right now. Magnetically. So what's the church? Is it a building? Is it a group of people who gather on Sunday? It is those things, but it's so much more. It's the company of a worldwide company from every nation and people drawn together by the magnetic power of the Word of God. 
that as this word is brought forth, it has a supernatural power at work that makes streams go uphill. The Holy Spirit does this magnetic work through the revealed truth of his word. And that's the message of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because we have that, we go. We take it. So friends, as we're walking into Advent and Christmas and we're thinking about all our traditions, we have to be careful because we've all inherited treasured traditions and not to be undervalued or discarded lightly, but they must always be evaluated in light of God's word. We're a traditional kind of church, right? We all have things we love about our time together and about what we do as families but they all must be, always must be evaluated in light of God's word. Have they become more, have the traditions and the way we do the Christian life become more important than the word of God in our lives? Are they even biblical at all? Do our traditions best present what the Bible teaches today? Is Christ church a place where when people talk about us in the community, people say, oh, those people they love the Bible. And you know, you know what some people will say. Those people really take their Bible seriously. Yeah, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. It's exciting. And what Isaiah is informing us and the Holy Spirit is informing us, God is gently giving us a hope and informing us that it's only in yearning for the word of God as a community that the whole church will bear evidence of this magnetic grace that he offers us. So therefore, I invite you, friends, if you haven't gotten one of our Repeat the Sounding Joy devotions, let's start there. It's a great time of year to step back and I know you're busy everybody's busy God is calling us to intentionally step back a little bit and yearn for the word of God as we approach Christmas so when we get to singing joy to the world we will repeat the sounding joy for the world to hear if you're a young person, I encourage you, you know, take those last, last half hour. You're done with your homework, then take some time. Open it up. Pray through that word. Let Christopher Ash just speak to you through his commentary. Get a journal and just write one sentence. Lord, how'd you speak to me? And write it down. Adults, let's do the same. Morning and in the evening office, daily office, the daily work is what we do. If you're retired, you know, I know a lot of you retirees are as busy as I am, it seems, quite frankly. But same thing, morning, evening, a rhythm of spending time in God's presence intentionally as you light the Advent candle, as you open up your Advent doors. They have Advent calendars for everything now. I mean, Advent calendars for beer, Advent calendars for jam, different types of candles. Just give me a paper Advent calendar. It's all I want. You know, day one. Oh, look, it's St. Nicholas. Great. All right. But whatever blesses you and helps you to know the Lord better, this is a great time of year to do that. And we do this, my friends, 
in this time of year because it's this one. If you keep reading, what you will see is God's people then do the same thing we do now. They weren't depending upon the Lord in any way as a people. The kings were called to administer the covenant to God's people, not to play king. And so by playing king, they amassed this massive army and what have you, not even relying on the Lord in any way. They relied on the idols of their day. They relied on their money and their investments and the wisdom of the world's ways over and above the Lord's ways. Sound familiar? But it's this Jesus who took our rebellion like that rebellion onto himself so that we could have his peace. That we, by taking him as our Savior and Lord, the one who died upon the cross for us that we could not do for ourselves so that we might be this magnetic people because of this amazing grace that he offers us. I love it that in John's first letter, he quotes this. But if we walk in the light, as Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sin. That's what we have. Come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord this Advent season. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in this Advent season, we can step back and see the call of the Lord on each and every one of our lives. That although it's unimpressive, your church will stand tall and all the nations will flow to it and your world will be at peace as we walk in the light as you're in the light. Lord, I pray this Advent season we truly would stay awake looking for your second coming as we do all the day of the year, but just as importantly, Lord, that we would marvel at this season of preparation because you sent your son for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.